Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Goudreau, the president of City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at CCNY matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, and mental health challenges, as well as healthcare disparities and immigration issues. Today, we're going to be discussing philanthropy in the current moment, 2020 and 2021, years of unprecedented uh, challenges. Early in this past year, COVID-19 began to spread across the world and really started to take root in the United States uh, in March. Uh, at this uh, uh, broadcast, over 400,000 Americans have, um, that we know of have succumbed to this illness and, and worldwide, it's, it's well over a million victims. Um, due to economic slowdowns and periodic lockdowns, businesses uh, are closed across the country and the world. And so there is an economic shadow to the health crisis that we're currently in. And of course, we have just um, come through a, a, an inspiring inauguration, but it was inspiring in large part because of the political turmoil that, that immediately preceded it. Uh, January 6th, saw an insurrection try to take over the U.S. Capitol. There were fears right up until the, the moment of President Biden's inauguration that there would be some domestic terrorist actions to try to prevent um, him taking his position. And across our um, nation, uh, representatives of the Republican Party refused in a historically unprecedented set of moves to acknowledge the, the political victory of President Biden. All of that, however, happily is uh, behind us, at least that is to say the, the president has been inaugurated. But we still face deep economic difficulties. We still face a persistent health crisis. And part of what's happened in the, in the middle of that is that the economic and social disparities facing the world uh, and facing our country have emerged. We know that the health crisis has had a sharply differential effect in communities of color. We know that the economic burden of the pandemic is, has been um, more desperately felt uh, among people who don't have a lot of economic uh, uh, resources. And so today we are going to turn our attention to the role of philanthropy and the role of, of the university's philanthropic uh, impulses and resources at a time of um, national crisis. So the first half of the show, we will have um, Didi Mozaleski, who is my senior advisor and the executive director of the Foundation for City College. And she'll join me to discuss the challenges of philanthropy at this time, in particular, to zero in on the role that our philanthropic programs allow us to play in the broader community. I'm tremendously honored in the second half of the show to have Reverend Maurice Winley, who is the assistant pastor of the Soul Saving Station Church on 124th Street here in Harlem. He is also the executive director of the Living Redemption Youth Opportunity Hub. It's a nonprofit organization which has been serving the Harlem community since 2017. And it's an organization that we at City College and Didi Mozaleski personally have been um, involved in. 
So I look forward to that conversation in the second half of the show. But first, let me welcome Didi back to the show. It is her third visit to From City to the World. And um, let me tell you just a little bit more about her. She spent almost 30 years working in uh, public institutions, some higher education institutions, some civic institutions and cultural programs, international agencies, and government organizations at City College. Her responsibilities include the, the, the management of the foundation for City College, which is the foundation that stewards and expands the college's public profile, works with philanthropists to provide support to the college, and also provides resources for things like our food pantry and, and various outreach uh, programs we have. Um, she's deeply involved in community engagement pro uh, projects. She is the moving force behind CCNY's community uh, gardens, um, the, the, the urban gardens at CCNY. And she also holds the portfolio of emergency support programs that, that extend opportunities to students in need. Um, having worked with some of the largest nonprofit organizations in New York and around the world, with a focus in North America, the Middle East, and Africa, Didi has continued to work as a public servant in support of causes that impact communities on a global scale. She served as the board member of Women in Development, um, New York City, Seeds of Africa Foundation, where she's also built K through 12 schools in Adama, Ethiopia. And I know that tomorrow, uh, on Saturday morning, she will be inducted as a, um, a, a board member of the board of directors of the Appalachian Mountain Club. So congratulations on that, Didi. She's a graduate of San Diego State University. Um, Didi Mozaleski, welcome once again to From City to the World. Thank you, it's good to be back. So let me just jump off with, with uh, talking about the responsibilities. Um, you hold many roles and responsibilities and, and you know, not just shepherding the foundation, but, but, but thinking about how foundation resources allow us to make an impact on the community. And, and so certainly COVID-19 has changed the way you work. It's probably uh, brought forward some needs that maybe you hadn't imagined earlier. So how has the pandemic affected the way you mobilize um, philanthropy at CCMI? Well, first, thank you again. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start by saying our, our department's extremely lucky. Um, we are on a campus that has allowed us to to continue to grow in the outreach on, on our both the campus and, and non-campus groups. Um, so, so really early on, we were fortunate to be one of the first places to open our pantry to the entire CUNY system. Um, and that was anybody who was a staff, um, staff member, faculty, or a student of the college. And in some cases, we've had family members of city college students come. And it's it's been important to be able to be open five days a week, be fully stocked, um, and also be able to do the intake interviews. It's allowed us to see where there have been bottlenecks across healthcare issues, bottlenecks across issues around housing. Um, we have a number of, of uh, visitors who have come back because they need help doing applications for city agencies that they're working with. And so I think being able to be physically on campus, be open, and be so inclusive to the entire, you know, half a million uh, student and, and um, staff faculty population of CUNY has given us a bird's eye view into where things can go wrong, but also when we can solve things where they can go right. Um, so I'll, I'll say that's been important for us. Early on, we, we adjusted our, our outreach across campus to, to gathering the information needed to see how the college itself was supporting not just our campus, but the community. 
So in March and April, we were able to identify a number of faculty who were working on specific issues around COVID, um, design and implementation around PPE equipment, um, people who were working on research that was focused more on the vaccine side, um, people who were doing uh, genetic research on how those vaccines might impact people in the future, and just being able to educate the community around what they should be thinking about, again, gave us a different kind of insight so that when we were shifting gears around philanthropy and we were asking for support around COVID emergency needs, we could look at a holistic um, conversation. We could look at emergency needs around housing, um, you know, financial assistance, emergency grants and food, and then we could also look at the long-term needs around sustainability, um, vaccination, health post-COVID, and, and then lobbying agencies to, get, to be better prepared in the future. And so I think lots of fundraising offices don't get to have that, that level of work as part of their portfolio, and, and our team's been able to take that on. And, and it's only made us better and more helpful to our, especially our donor and alumni community, when they say what's happening at the college. We're able to, in real time, with data, say this is what's happening. Could you talk about, I mean, as, as, as a, a, an executive director of a foundation and the college's chief fundraiser, a lot of what you do has to do with donor relations. And many of our donors were city college students themselves and have gone on to do other things, specifically around the needs of the moment, the pandemic and the sorts of needs our students have. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that conversation with alumni has, has, has gone? How how deeply do they understand uh, what's going on on campus and, and, and how does that, that um, translate in, into support for the college? Well, and I, I should say there's been an evolution. Um, early on coming into this position where the needs around direct support for students was, was changing, um, we were able to work with alumni and non-alumni to encourage them to support things around internships, for example, um, to encourage them to think more broadly around scholarships and it not being strictly around covering tuition. So, so I think that baseline helped us, um, especially in March and April, we partnered with Hope for College on a college-wide survey, specifically around emergency needs for our students. The results of that survey helped us, helped us key in on you know, what, what was preventing students from being um, fully able to engage with their academics. Quite often, what it, it wasn't around technology. It was around needing to prioritize in the household who could work. So if their family members got sick, if their parents weren't able to work, if they were required to be the primary caregiver for their you know, children or their siblings or their um, grandparents, that survey allowed us to, to more directly focus emergency aid. Um, months ago, um, actually a year ago, uh, a colleague you know, made it really clear that when we opened the pantry, the pantry was a place that was both give and take. So the same people who would visit the pantry to take would also return to the pantry to donate. That that held, you know, that held over um, in in the early days of, of of COVID impacting the college. But the eye opener was as we were doing emergency um, interviews, so emergency aid interviews, the number of students who had prioritized tuition against everything else because they believed strongly that their college education was going to be the driving force post pandemic to their next their next steps, the next steps for themselves, the next steps for their children, the next steps for their families. And so being able to take the, that narrative and then craft public communications around that, that, that even in the middle of, the, of one of the worst crises that the city has faced, 
our, our student body collectively believed that the education they were getting at City College was going to transcend that, that crisis. And I thought, more than anything, that helps me talk with, with our board, with our colleagues on staff, with our donors, and with people who hadn't been involved in the college um, pre-pandemic, but who wrote and said, at this time and in, in, in the nation's history, a place like City has to exist. So how can I help? I wonder if you could think a little bit about the world of philanthropy and, and the, the kind of challenges that are before us now as a, as a people. How do you think the pandemic is, is going to shape or change uh, philanthropic impulses? So I, I will say that, especially for our, our, for our campus in particular, I was, I think I was surprised and not surprised when we first told people that in moving students off campus, it helped us uncover the number of students who were homeless. And, and that knowledge was, was something that we could solve um, with, with our partners, but something our donors had never thought of. Mm -hmm. and, and the number of people who came, you know, said to me, even growing up in, um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they may not have had access to things. It never dawned on them that college students today um, don't have access to food three times a day, don't have access to um, you know, emergency funds to pay for rent, um, prioritize one thing over another in ways that they had never imagined. So when we talk about aid to students, a lot of the resistance we got early on and a lot of the resistance that nonprofits get as a whole is allowing a director of a program to set the vision of the program. Um, I think about the Mackenzie Scott gift and the gifts she's been giving. This is the, these this are the two $30 million gifts to CUNY campuses. Right. And, and her, I believe, close to $400 million to, to colleges and nonprofits around the country. And what's, what's really interesting is she's done something that most people have been shied away from. She's allowed the heads of those organizations to, to take her the giving and imagine what they need for themselves. She hasn't come in and imposed a structure. She hasn't come in and said, you know, in this crisis, I want you to do the following things, or I want you to assess a certain way. She has said, you're on the ground. I want you to come, I want you to take this and decide how it's going to impact you for the future. And I'm going to trust that you're going to do a good job at this because you're in the middle of the problem. And, and I can see that as, as philanthropy goes in two directions, a direction that says philanthropy is not about money, it's about time and energy and volunteering. I see, I see that COVID has caused people to reassess that and that philanthropy is absolutely about those three things, but it's also about partnering with the, the, the organizations that you care most about or that you want to get more involved with or you want to learn more about and, and listening to them. And, and I'll, I mean, I'll, I, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but, but being able to work with Reverend Winley and his team, he, his, his eye is on, on a much greater community than, than I see on a daily basis because I've got a finite body of people I have to focus on. And, and watching the agencies that he works with as he builds his sustainability, as he builds out his network, and then watching across the city the way this is happening. I, I hope that going forward, the nonprofit community voice is heard as a leader in change in a way that it hasn't been, at least that it hasn't been in the last 25, 30 years. You know, so for those of you that don't know, being the executive director of the foundation for City College means that, that Didi spends a lot of time thinking about fundraising and, and you know how to support our students on campus. But one of the things that's been striking about 
her leadership this, in this work at CCNY is that she's also consistently thought about how the college moves off campus. And, and you, you know, the urban gardens at City College was immediately imagined as a place where um, children from area schools can come in and work with our with our students. And, and we will be talking a little bit later with Reverend Lindley about the partnership that she spearheaded with Living Redemption. But I, I guess I wanted to ask you, Didi, as you think about the proper, like the role that that kind of outreach plays both in, in philanthropy at City College and in the construction of, I, I guess it's the identity of City College. How does that all fit together in your mind? And why have you been so eager to think both about what the, 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 the good of the campus community, but also the role that the campus community plays outside of our campus walls? So I always think back to when you first hired me into the Colin Powell Center, and you said that one of the, one of the challenges of higher education was that the, the nation as a whole, communities at large, communities at, you know, in, in small war communities, they'd moved away from asking the questions of, of, the, of academia that can solve, solve big challenges. And that part of our job in the center and then the Colin Powell School would be to, to reimagine ourselves as, as voices both in and out of the college. And, and I come from, um, I come from San Diego and I, I come from living on on a military base. And so the impact of the base is, is never felt externally um, except by individual actions. And, and so when you, you have an opportunity to say, you're a huge organization, but I can take a moment to open up the doors to the college for Halloween where small children and teenagers and adults and grandparents can come and enjoy the college campus. What that says is the place is open to you. And, and I think very strongly about the foundation as a whole, the Office of Institutional Advancement as a whole, our communications team as a whole. Our job is to throw the doors open so that people find a pathway in. And, you know, it maybe took a year or so of working, you know, in our, in our former positions together of tracing back the history of the college. And you see that every time the college has changed, so every time a new group of, of people have come to the college, it's, it's been triggered by something global that's happened or something um, local economically that's, that's impacted someone. Um, why do you go pick City College? Because they're coming to solve, a, they're coming to solve a challenge that they haven't been able to solve elsewhere. And so, so my job, um, and, and you gave me this, you said I could come into the office and, and be an activist-minded organization in this office. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a better place, right? And, and who better to make that impact than the philanthropists who are keying in on the role of City College and to help them help them see that we're doing something today, we're doing something to honor their legacy here, but we're, we're paving a way for the next 100 years, the next 200 years. I think that's, that's it's pretty joyous work, right? Yeah, it is, it is. You know, we, we're, we, we're, we're famous nationally for, for the social mobility that we create in our in our graduating students we are you know by some calculations we're the number one or number two country uh, school in the country in doing that but 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 one of the things i think we've been able to do together is to say that should be our brand 
and it should be our brand, not just for people who are enrolled in the college, but for what our impact should be in a neighborhood where social mobility is, is desperately needed. All of which brings me, you know, we're gonna, in just a second, uh, bring Reverend Winley into this conversation. I, I wanted to start, you know, before we talked about his experiences in living redemption, I wanted to talk a little bit about how um, how you think about this specific partnership. You know, a lot of times when we when we work out in the community, sometimes it's to draw students onto campus with scholarships, and sometimes it's to make our academic knowledge available to people. You know, so we have a medical school that that has been working with the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce in uh, uh, a project to reduce the amount of opioid addiction and you know that, that that kind of effort to make our expertise available and useful to our to our neighbors and our community um, but this uh, this is a this is a little bit different project right you you come to this project not as a contributor of funds but as an organizational administrative expert and i just wonder how you know if you could talk a little bit about how how this began for you and 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 how you think it fits into the larger vision of what we should be doing on campus yeah, um, so so early on we were in a conversation with another harlem group and the manhattan da's office um around what, what's called the fiscal sponsorship um so it's usually around a an organization that that is building towards sustainability but it wasn't at the sustainable moment when the DA's office was providing funds to do community justice work, social impact work, things like that. And, and when the DA's office originally reached out, they, I, and we talked about this, the answer was far less, could we administratively serve, but did we have a mission alignment? Would there be moments where we could work together with the partner organization? Could we open up the academic units? Could we, could we team up with our staff? Could we find ways to do that thing that we said, open the doors to the college and, and offer the expertise when and where needed and, and have spaces where we could look together, not just under the fiscal sponsorship, but when this is over, we wanna be partners, we wanna be friends, we wanna be able to work together, we wanna be able to collaborate, we wanna be able to call each other and brainstorm. And so I think, you know, after the very first meeting, I, I was really hopeful that Maurice would say yes to us because I just thought the work that they were doing was so exciting. Um, and and so you take aside the administrative fiscal sponsorship and you look at the work that, that he'll be talking about, why wouldn't the college want to be engaged? Um, our, our, we've got a campus engagement network that easily should be deeply impacted, you know, deeply embedded and wants to be. We've got a master's in public administration that is, you know, just looking for ways to, to sort of help think about things um, and, and to partner with organizations. We've got a a minor in, in social in community change studies, teaching our students how to go into nonprofits and, and work with them on, on their mission building and their mission outreach. So I just thought it was a perfect fit. Um, and, and we've been really lucky. We, we, were, we were at the right space at the right time, had, had the staff that could be assigned, and, and Maurice said yes to us, which I thought was <laughs> the most important part of it. And what it's done for the, for the office, for the college, is it reinforces what we've said. If there are partner organizations we should be working with where we can do we can do good work together, we can be a resource 
and not um, not necessarily the driver of the content, but but truly a partner and offering expertise. Here we are. I think it opens the doors for lots of other partnerships like this. The other thing is, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. Working on this project has also taught me what the rest of the CUNY schools are doing. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount around John Jay's work that I didn't know about before this. Um, I've got, you know, I've had moments to to listen in on um, Maurice educating other groups on the work they're doing. Um, it's brought me into a universe of, of our Institute for State and Local Governance that um, enables us to think more broadly about our work. And so all in all, it's actually been really good. It's been good to learn about a partner, but it's been good to learn about ourselves as well. And now it's my great pleasure to turn to my second guest, uh, Reverend Maurice Winley, and ask him to join our conversation. Reverend Winley is the assistant pastor of the Soul Saving Station Church, which has served the Harlem community since 1942. He's also the executive director of the Living Redemption Youth Opportunity Hub, that's a nonprofit that he launched in 2017 to serve the youth, the families, and communities in Central and West Harlem. In 2019, Reverend Windley founded Living Redemption Community Development Corporation, and that was designed to expand the reach to serve a broader Harlem constituency. He's a founding member of the Credible Messenger Justice Center, a former director of the Credible Messenger Mentoring at Community Connections for Youth, and the former director of Transformative Mentoring at Harlem Commonwealth Council. He's had over 25 years of experience as a youth development specialist working with youth and families. I'm gonna come back to this, this, this phrase, credible messenger that, that came up so many times in his introduction. But for now, I'm really pleased to uh, welcome Reverend Winley to From City to the World. Welcome, Reverend. Thank you for having me, Vince. Good to be with well, you. Really pleased that you're able to spend some time with us. Could we just start by by you telling us the story of Living Redemption Youth Opportunity Hub, and and then some of the programs you've been operating during the uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis and your role in those programs? Sure. Uh, Living Redemption Youth Opportunity Hub was born out of investment monies that was seized uh, from HSBC Bank uh, was positioned under the premise of how could we prevent young people from entering the criminal justice system. Uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office developed a, a, a strategic framework uh, which comprised a number of investment and initiatives and the Youth Opportunity Hub was one of the major and significant investments. What was significant about uh, the process was that the whole framework uh, for investment was based on input and process sessions with community leaders asking them if money wasn't an option what would you do to prevent you from entering the criminal justice system so those were the premises uh from that we were able to successfully apply uh for one of the youth opportunity hub grants and was awarded uh a grant uh to uh serve uh central and west harlem uh since inception this is along with community connections for youth uh, since uh since inception we have served over 635 youth uh, and families hyper-local to Central and West Harlem. Uh, we provide a broad array of services, opportunities, and supports. Our mission is saving lives and healing communities one relationship at a time. And we basically realize that uh, our, our youth and our communities, we provide the healing. We particularly target uh, the youth who are unfortunately disconnected, uh, justice impacted. Uh, we reach out to them intentionally uh, building a, a relational ecosystem around them 
uh, connecting them to opportunities, as well as doing the deep healing uh, and inner work with them. And so uh, in the wake of COVID, uh, we had to pivot uh, new challenges, uh, new opportunities. Uh, one of the opportunities that we saw was around food insecurity. And, and through uh, partnerships, we began uh, discussing how we could uh, operate and mobilize an open air food pantry. So since April of, of last year, uh, we've been operating a, a food pantry, an open air food pantry. We've been able to provide a safe space for young people to serve and to receive uh, financial incentive, um, as well as being able to provide tangibly for many of their families and serve the community and to have a role that is meaningful. And so through that outreach, we've, uh, we've served over 58,000 uh, individuals. Um, again, we meet twice a week. Another significant uh, uh, initiative that has come out, um, and again, this is in partnership uh, with uh, CCNY, uh, is our T2, uh, a contact tracing uh, public health campaign, really mobilizing youth in the community to understand the, the serious nature of this COVID pandemic, uh, empowering them to create uh, various uh, media, whether it's songs, video, uh, to disseminate uh, across social media, as well as in the community, uh, disseminating information, uh, PPE, testing site information, and hotspots. Uh, this is in conjunction with the Health and Hospitals Corporation. And so we receive uh, priority data of where there are hotspots and we mobilize teams to go into those areas uh, to disseminate information around and resources around COVID. So that's a, a brief uh, kind of account of what we've been doing, Vince, in the wake of COVID. We're providing uh, clothing uh, through a, a partnership that came through CCNY with Career Gear. We're also uh, providing uh, uh, examined free eyeglasses. We have pop-up eye clinics where uh, you have uh, uh, ophthalmologists, optician, and optometrists on site. Uh, where individuals can provide, uh, be received free glasses. We also provide hot meals. So we are responsive to the needs of the community. Uh, and, and so we really try to align our service array and resources to, to where the pain is. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of the work that you do, you know, a, a word that kept coming up in your description of, 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 of the project is relationships, you know, that you you you're, you're dealing with youth that are oftentimes disconnected. They're deprived of those relationships. And, and, and you have worked really to build a kind of uh, relational network that, that, that holds youth and keeps them safe. That's gotta have been made much more difficult at a time when you know, just being physically close to one another puts us at risk. And can you talk a little bit about how you've managed to maintain your program, but also mitigate the risks of, 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 of being in close contact with one another? Yes. And um, yes, um, we, we, we have deployed uh, a virtual engagement strategy. And so many of our offerings, our core offerings, and also our partner offerings, we really basically created a virtual enrichment catalog. Um, mm -hmm. And so which allowed uh, the young people to come in and still experience virtually uh, what they were experiencing on site. Um, this complemented uh, the uh, outreach that we were facilitating outdoors. We would still allow them to come by to pick up relief 
pick up resources. So that still allowed a light touch, a physical touch. Uh, we, we also uh, began to uh, provide them. We've noticed that digital divide, the reality of digital divide is real and that many uh, did not have access uh, to appropriate technology or accessibility in terms of uh, Wi-Fi to access all of the opportunities. And so we've been leveraging resources to, uh, to fill that gap. But the main thing is uh, keeping connectivity, uh, managing even uh, Zoom fatigue, which is a reality. Um, but we've been we've been very successful. Uh, we were able to really pivot very quickly um, to uh, engaging our youth uh, on online platforms and through the variety of services to maintain the connection. Um, it's still heartfelt because there's nothing like uh, physical relationships, but I think that we have been able to do an excellent job, as you stated, to really mitigate. Uh, we want to make sure that the youth uh, were safe and they understood the priorities, uh, safe uh, and at the same time, they're able to be able to participate uh, in relevant instruction and meaningful roles. You, you know, so much of, especially in, in the, the difficult March, April, May we had here in New York City, so much uh, of, of, of the devastation was felt in communities of color. And, and you, you know, it, I think it was frustrating for New Yorkers as we were going through those, those difficult, difficult months to, to look at the rest of the world and see people, you know, not wearing masks or having parties or, you know, all the kinds of things that we now know contributed to the nationalization of, uh, of the crisis and, and made the U.S. really the most dangerous place to be as far as COVID-19 is concerned. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, you're, you're situated in a community that was badly hit in the first wave of the pandemic. You've been focusing on education, you've involved young people in this T2 pro project, which, which both puts them in the role of, of being educators, but, that, but you educate them in the process of making them educators. And so uh, my question is, have you seen in your community an expansion of the resources, the knowledge, the awareness of how we grapple with this crisis? And, and how do you balance that against the fact that, you know, I just got to say, we are all tired now. We're, all, we're coming on a year into this crisis. And so how do you see in, in the people you're working with the balance being struck between knowledge and responsibility on the one hand and, and you know, just the difficulty of coping with this as the months drag on? Yes. Um, I mean, we've, we've heard, Vince, um, you know, the term pre-existing conditions yeah and in our communities uh many of the disparities and pain and trauma COVID just had uh exponentialized it and laid it to bear um yeah. you know there are uh you know we look i look at our site you know it's, it's like an oasis um and mm -hmm. there's pockets of that i think there could be more collective action um mm -hmm. and again some of that has just been uh, uh, stymied uh, in, in the context of trying to adhere uh, to uh, public health measures. But with that being said, it's also part of just the, uh, the mentality of survival um, and not understanding uh, the, the principle of interdependence. And so the, the, the knowledge and responsibility tension, um, because we see uh, many young people, uh, you know, particularly in the pandemic, I mean, early on and even now, 
that sometimes take a, a haphazard um, uh, approach uh, to, you know, in terms of uh, wearing a mask, in terms of really understanding uh, the seriousness of it. Um, you know, uh, we had a situation where uh, some friends, uh, you know, one of the members, they had a gathering and then it was told later on uh, that one person at the gathering had tested positive. That became a very surreal moment. And so again, because sometimes they haven't experienced it and they had this false sense of vulnerability. I think that uh, the, the health disparities, the, 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 the poverty, the economic inequality, all of those tensions, there's a, there's a hopefulness. And like I said, there's a resilience. I always try to take a strength-based approach um, but at the same time, you see expressions of a, of a sort of nihilism, of a hopelessness that's so pervasive, it's so thick um, that 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 this COVID pandemic has brought into our communities. And so again, to have these uh, movements, um, you know, like CCNY, these opportunities, these touches, whether it's virtual, whether whether it's in the community, it's essential. Uh, another thing that I, I observed through the food and security efforts is the quality of, of produce uh, that's available in the Harlem community. That's something that was painfully, uh, you know, many of the supermarkets were bare. And, and so we began to uh, network and be able to bring in a lot more uh, fresh produce in the community in terms of the quality and those that have affordability, because uh, everyone cannot afford say, whole food uh, uh, budget uh, shopping. I want to stay on this, this, uh, this topic of, of what, what the reality is on the ground and, and, and talk a little bit about the way your intervention, you know, at an individual level in the lives of the young people you work with is, is making a difference. You know, I guess the first thing I want to ask, you, you talked briefly about the, the TQ program where, where, where students, were, where young people were going in to hot spots and doing some education and I guess contact tracing. Um, could, you, could you unpack that a little bit more? Like if, if, if I just, let's say I'm 16 years old and I come to you and, and, and you bring me into this network, what kinds of things are you expecting me to do? What sorts of things would I be learning as a participant in the program? Sure. The first, the first process is that every uh, member uh, will complete what we call an individual success plan. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a, a motivational interview, biopsychosocial assessment, uh, which provides a framework uh, for our partnership with the young person. We've learned that many programs are not uh, do not see uh, the value that come with a deficit lens, um, and we can uh, unintentionally uh, enable uh, uh, dependency. And so because we come from an empowerment framework, we create uh, outcomes of milestones that they are co-created uh, of goals that they want to accomplish. And then what we, we, we tether that to financial incentive. So for example, an individual comes and one of the, the, the success plan factors is uh, for their independence is obtaining a license. And so we lay out these tiers of, of quadrants, you know, with a holistic lens, you know, independence, wellness, education, workforce, healing, right, uh, and health. 
and lay out goals that we incentivize. So that becomes the basis of the work. Um, and then from there, uh, looking for uh, the affinity lines. And so if they're coming into the T2, uh, the, the, the community ambassadors, uh, their responsibility uh, is to first learn, uh, is to first learn and to model. Um, and, and based on the, those abilities of learning and model, then we'll move you into, uh, we, we've created a, a digital arts academy uh, where participants, there's, there's three prongs where they can be involved with producing uh, songs, video, or they could be involved with creating uh, social media content. Uh, there's all of these are going to converge um, and become a, a live video. We actually have from the first cycle, we're, we're, we're pretty much uh, in the editing phase of the video um, and that then that'll be going face. So we'll continue cycling that and that's pretty much how we found them in uh, the education component. Uh, the next phase will be uh, creating a, a, a weekly or biweekly forum that is youth led. Um, that, that gives uh, them voice uh, to share what they've been learning, share their experiences, and, 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 and within the ecosystem of all that's going on uh, from the COVID epicenter. And so uh, that's pretty much the framework, but that ISP becomes the groundwork for the healing, for the empowerment work, uh, for the activism, uh, for, for that individual, that's just how we're funneled into the T2, but any other opportunity, the ISP, that becomes the work that guides uh, the, the mentoring, if you will, and the conversation. Uh, that's the core, that's the engine. Everything else is peripheral, uh, but, but the, and that's something that's revisited um, and reevaluated. And again, it's co-created because we've learned when you're giving incentives, you do not want to cultivate uh, a dependence and entitlement. And so we want them to learn they have to earn uh, they have to put work in, they have to have skin in the game. Um, and so that's how we've been applying uh, that principle of entry uh, into the program, and particularly the opportunities that are available. And again, paid opportunities, um, again, being able to go out. Uh, it's nothing more powerful than being able to serve in a meaningful way. And you see uh, the, the, the transformation um, that's going on in the young people's lives when you have individuals coming to them and thanking them for being out here and providing these resources for their family. And you see the impact. I've had kids break down and cry um, mm -hmm. as they are, are, are feeling uh, the value and the recognition and the affirmation, uh, not only externally, but the internal uh, value. You know, I always share with my team, uh, your service, your contribution, that's your ultimate paycheck. And so, uh, our, our value of mission over money, that's something that we, we try to imbibe and inoculate our young people with. And they're experiencing that firsthand because they're not now, they're not looked at no longer just as participants, but they are producers. You know, I, it's funny around, you know, we're still in the shadow of, of, of the presidential inauguration. And as I was driving into work today, they they played uh, a little bit of the John, John F. Kennedy speech, you know, the famous one. Where the you know ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. What I had forgotten is that the prelude to that, the words before he gets to that ringing phrase, he's talking about the difficult moment that he finds himself in. Uh, you know, 1962, a lot of danger, a lot of need in the world, and 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 what he says is, 
few human beings have the opportunity to serve at a time of genuine national crisis. And, and we, don't, we don't shrink from that opportunity, we rise to it. And, and you know, you, you've eloquently described how you see that in the young people that you serve. But I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, about your staff and, and even yourself. Like, how are you all holding together this 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 moment, whether you call it an opportunity or or a burden, but but how you keep your mission going despite all of the headwinds of COVID nineteen and economic downturn and and all of the upheavals we've had around systemic racism. What do you see in the people that you're working with in this moment? Yes, um, yes, these have been you know uh, disruptive. Uh, adverse, heavy times. Uh, some of our rituals that uh, we had pre-COVID, uh, which, uh, you know, which I always would have a, a weekly uh, devotional, if you will, it was always voluntary, um, but that became, uh, uh, even pre-COVID, it became a place where we can kind of step out of our formal roles. Um, I find that sometimes the challenge of of being in our professional and we kind of compartmentalize that from the rest of our lives. Our ethos uh, that we've established, we, we try to be authentic and integral, uh, integrity. Um, and so creating that space for uh, those types of communications to challenge and to support, to lament. And so pre-COVID, that kind of routine and ritual had been established. And so it became, um, it became a fortress for us uh, to have that, and that's, that continues to be a stabilizer. This is totally separate from any staff meetings or information session. This is something where it's just inspiration, being vulnerable, being transparent about what we're feeling in the moment. And as you mentioned, there was so much uh, within the pandemic itself, you know, George Floyd, the uh, Black Lives Matters protests, and, and particularly in our role with system engagement, um, working with NYPD probation, rolling out, you know, in the midst of rolling out major new initiatives and being able to, but it all goes back to the relationships. We, we have a family approach. Um, it's, it's relationships, it's not programs that will change lives. And, and, and we have to really uh, redefine. I always share with the team, we have to see ourselves as part of the problem. Um, our communities, because of our relationship with law enforcement, uh, it has been adversarial, um, and rightly so in many cases. But if we're going to be able to come to the table to make peace and to reconcile, we cannot look at each other as objects, obstacles, or irrelevant. We have to see each other as human beings. And so that's the work that we do. Um, it, has, it has become a, a, a resilience factor for us, some of the rituals because it, it has new meaning. Um, we, as you mentioned, the, there is uh, compassion fatigue, you know, because, you know, everyone has, you, know, you have family, you, you need to feel uh, pre-existing, because, you know, all those concerns that come, uh, that's associated with anyone engaged in front line uh, in this time and context. But those rituals, uh, our core values, um, the vision and the mission, um, and seeing, uh, the greater need um, and, and the opportunities that we, we're, we're being presented with to, to serve. And because the mission is fuel, 
it's it, it's sustaining us. I'm not going to say that it's not a it's not a press. It's not a difficult journey. Um, it's like operating in a hundred times gravity at times. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, because we're working together um, around a, a vision that we all uh, believe in, and we're able to be vulnerable um, with each other and be strengthened even in our vulnerabilities um, together, that's how we've been able to persevere and make it this far. You know, I want to I want to talk, and this probably we're gonna have to wrap up sadly after this question. But you know, you're you you've got your approach to this work is so grounded. It's so located in the community. At the same time, you're, you're, you're reaching out and making relationships with places like City College and the district attorney's office and, and other, you know, what we could call kind of external actors. And, and I guess I wanted to ask you, uh, maybe it's a hard question, but, but what is it that you think when you work with an external entity, and I, I include City College in this, what is it that you, you, you think they need to understand about your work or we need to understand about your work that sometimes we don't? That when, like if we miss the point in a, in a collaboration with you, like how does that, what does that look like most of the time? Do you have a sense of that? Yes, I, I, think, I think that uh, particularly with our institution and system partners, uh, because they're they're large and process driven, we're we're grassroots, and so we live in the space of adaptation and mm -hmm. innovation and responsiveness. And because of our context, as I shared, is really prevention and crisis intervention. Uh, the response to uh, needs it needs to be very fluid um, because those what we what we always share. Uh, what I share with the team is that uh, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Uh, mm -hmm. So timing uh, is is essential. And so I, I think that that's, you know, some of it is just culture, understanding, uh, you know, when you're smaller, you know, things are going to happen more organically. Um, I think also, and, and Didi alluded to it in terms of also understanding, uh, being willing to share locus of control. Um, you know, because like you said, when you're on the ground, you know, there's an MRI that we have of the community. You might be seeing it just because of the height, you know, you're looking at, you You have, you may have an x-ray, but we have a, a 3D MRI. You follow me? I yep, think yep. the other issue is language. Uh, language is always a barrier to collective action. And so being able to translate uh, and, and to and to have those kind of brokers, uh, you know, I think that's a liaison so that way the communication is effective. I mean, you're doing remarkable work. You know, I, I will say that, that the work that the college does with you, I, I, I hope, and, you know, with, with Didi guiding it, I, I, I'm confident that, that we're guided as much as we possibly can be by the insights of, of of your MRI level view of, of the situation on the ground. And locus of control is, is, is also, I think, something we, we, we think about uh, a lot. I get, I mean, we have just about one minute before I've got to wrap up, but I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to ask Didi, in this partnership with, with Living Redemption, what, what, what do you think has been, um, in some ways, the biggest challenge, or, 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 or maybe the flip side of that, what we've 
what we've really tried to deliver in that partnership. Easy. Our biggest challenge is not being able to be together. Um, I would yeah. love to go to the doors for, you know, courses that um, that Maurice's team or their, you know, their their visitors or guests would like to take. Um, I'd love to see on-campus partnership around some of the, the service stuff that we're doing together. Um, I, we early on we're going to do um, a food drive together. Couldn't do it because we weren't allowed to. So so being able to be physically together and and map out the collaborations that make sense. That's a, that's our biggest challenge right now. Um, I, something tells me that if that if we didn't have that 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 thing keeping us apart right now, we'd yes. be you know 20 years into the, the, the partnership right now. Um, we'd be yes. all over the city growing things together. That <laughs> make um, so I, I hope I hope I nailed that one, Marie. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, like you mentioned, I mean what what we envisioned. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, you know, and where, like you said, the level of dialogue, the level of alignment, and that was just one of the disruptions. And I, I agree wholeheartedly, you know, COVID has, you know, that's that's been a tremendous factor. And so we're, we're I'm grateful, I mean, you know, the brilliance of the team. And um, like I said, the alignment, uh, you know, the de you, you sense the dedication with, with everybody on the team and we're, and we're grateful uh, for this uh, relationship, for this partnership, and we're looking forward to continue to cultivate it, nurture it, and grow it. Well, you know, may it come to pass. We are absolutely uh, grateful and eager to 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 extend this. Um, we are too quickly, I'm afraid, out of time. I want to give a special thanks to our guest, Reverend Maurice Winley, who is the executive director of the Living Redemption Youth Opportunity Hub. He is also, I, I, I should say, newly installed as the assistant pastor at um, the Soul Saving Station on 124th Street. That is a church that has been very much in your family for generations, and it was a proud moment, I think, for both of us to be able to to um, be virtually present at your installation. That was that was a, a, a really uplifting moment, and and really glad to see you elevated to that stature in, in your in your church and in your community. Um, also want to thank um, Didi Mozaleski, the executive director of the Foundation for City College, um, and also my senior advisor. I'll say if you missed any part of this show or other shows, you can go to ctny.cuny.edu and search the term from city to the world. You can hear the podcast. All of our podcasts are available online. The show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. And I am your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. Thanks, everybody.